Welcome to Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. With over 150 years of experience and deep industry knowledge, Weber Wenzel is the leading full-service law firm on the African continent. Welcome to the Weber Wenzel Legal Insights Podcast. You're listening to the second part of our series on the impact of COVID-19 on the South African retail sector. In part one, we talked in depth about what qualifies as essential goods and services, excessive pricing of face masks, tenant obligations, tax relief, and much more. If you haven't yet, you can listen to part one of this podcast wherever you are listening right now. Today we are going to continue this fascinating discussion about the effects of COVID-19 on the South African retail sector with a cast of legal experts from Weber Wenzel. We're going to start by talking to Maria Philippides. Maria, often when disaster strikes, we're all glad that we are insured. But how does insurance work in a time of pandemic? Do the usual principles apply? Well, Toby, usually business insurance policies are structured in such a way so as to cover physical damage to the insured business premises and any resultant business interruption losses that may ensue. So it has come as a surprise to some businesses that they did not have cover for business interruption losses due to pandemics or government-imposed lockdowns because what is usually required is that the interruption in the business has resulted from some underlying property damage. For example, when a shopping center suffers a fire and the building is damaged so that the center cannot trade, any resultant business interruption losses in that case will be covered. But the position is not the same when it comes to pandemics or lockdowns because the interruption in the course of the business in this particular case has not happened because of any underlying property damage that has prevented or limited trade. In this case, as we are finding with the outbreak of the disease, one finds that the property has remained in its undamaged state, but something else has caused the interruption in the business. So in our present circumstances, it would either be the outbreak of the disease that has caused people not to go to that particular business, or more commonly, as we are seeing, the national lockdown that was announced by the president, which in the normal course of events would not be covered. One may recall uh, the terror attack on London Bridge in 2017, where the incident actually had taken place on the bridge a terrorist had driven onto the pavement uh, and had knocked over pedestrians. In that particular incident, what had happened is the shops in the nearby borough market had to be closed by police after the event because they had cordoned off the area for a few days following the attack in order to complete their investigations. Now, the issue that arose in the insurance context in that example was that certain restauranteurs were unable to claim on their policies because their shops had not suffered any physical damage during the attack, but had simply been closed because of police action. 
And as a result of that, they were not able to claim on their business interruption policies. So what was needed then and what is needed now for such losses to be covered is an extension in the policy that covers business interruptions which are caused by either a terrorist attack in that case or an outbreak of a disease or the imposition of restrictions by the government in the present circumstances. The trends that we are seeing at the moment from abroad and in particular from the United States, are that arguments are being made that the outbreak of a disease causes contamination of the business premises and that this amounts to physical damage to the premises. So naturally, if that happens, then any business interruption losses that follow would be covered. Unfortunately, this is not the trend that has been followed in South Africa, where the requirement is that there must be an extension in the policy, specifically covering pandemics, in order for the policy to be triggered. Once people have determined that they have a, a case or they want to argue they have a bona fide case, what requirements before for a policy decision can be made? Well, essentially, what is required is that there must be an extension of cover for contagious or infectious diseases under that policy. These types of extensions usually have specific requirements that must be met before the policy will respond, such as, firstly, there must be an interruption or interference with the business. If it is a retail shop selling essential goods, for example, the likelihood is that that business will not have suffered an interference with its business. On the contrary, it might see a spike in business. So that requirement will then not have been met. But in addition to that, the interruption must be shown to have been caused by the outbreak or the occurrence of the disease. And usually the policies specify what kind of disease they are looking for. They either say something like a contagious disease or an infectious disease or a notifiable disease in terms of any regulations. And in the context of COVID-19, well, we know that it is a very contagious and infectious disease, and it certainly has been classified as a notifiable medical condition in terms of our regulations. So I think that one is easy to tick. The next requirement, I think, is what causes some anxiety for insureds, and that is that the outbreak or the occurrence of the disease must have occurred at the particular premises or within a specified radius of the premises. And usually it's either a 10-kilometer or 25-kilometer radius. So it's not good enough to say that there's been an outbreak of COVID-19 in South Africa. The particular insured must show that there was an outbreak or an occurrence at its premises or within that specified radius. And we actually have a true life example of this uh, recently where one of the healthcare practitioners of a KwaZulu-Natal hospital was positively diagnosed with the disease and the hospital was accordingly closed. That would be a classic case 
of the disease having broken out at the premises. And then the last thing that one will look at is whether there are any exclusions for that type of disease within that extension. So what has happened is a number of years ago, there was an outbreak of the SARS virus. After that, insurers decided that it was not beneficial to insure those kind of outbreaks, and they have placed exclusions for those types of viruses in their insurance policies. So provided it isn't part of an excluded outbreak of a disease uh, and all of the other requirements have been met, then the policy will typically respond to the loss. There is some uh, confusion at the moment because it must be borne in mind that the requirements are strict and, of course, each case will be examined on its own merits and according to its own insurance policy. But there is room for different interpretations, particularly where the closure of the business or the interruption of the business may have taken place because of the government proclamation of a lockdown rather than an actual outbreak of the disease. So those particular facts would have to be examined and it would have to be proven by the insured that it was because of an outbreak either at its premises or within the specified radius that its business has suffered an interruption. And, you know, as with the previous speakers, it is, of course, very important to seek a legal interpretation of the policy provisions because where a particular insured might think he is or is not covered, the opposite would be true. That's very interesting. I mean, who foresaw this apart from, it turns out, the insurance industry, they have been dealing with the other respiratory illness attacks, especially in Asia for ages. How does a business quantify its indemnifiable losses? Provided that it is indemnified and that the extension has been triggered, there are various ways to see whether a loss is indemnifiable under the policy. And of course, the policy will tell the insured how to work it out. In some instances, it is as simple as providing for loss of gross revenue. So, for example, uh, restaurants may be able to say, I haven't been able to trade, so I haven't made my expected revenue and that is my loss. But in other circumstances, it can be quite complicated because the provision would then be that one has to work out what additional expenditure the business had to incur in order to diminish its loss of revenue. And this is called an increased cost of working. So it's not as simple as saying, I haven't traded this month, I would normally expect so many hundreds of thousands, I haven't made them, so I can claim that. It would be rather looking at what additional measures have been put into place to try and minimize the loss that has been suffered. Uh, and this happens particularly with those stores that trade in both essential and non-essential goods. Their cost might be the same, continuing to be the same on a month-to-month -month basis, even though they don't expect to make the same amount of revenue. And one could argue that that additional cost is additional expenditure that has to be incurred so that they don't suffer a complete loss in revenue. Of course, what would have to be taken into account is the amount saved during that period, and that would be deducted from the additional cost or the loss of gross revenue to work out what the actual loss is. 
But all in all, insurance companies are quite geared for these types of catastrophes. And uh, they would appoint either a loss adjuster to come out and assist the particular insured to work out what the loss is. Or very often, the insurance brokers themselves have put together uh, task teams who are able to assist their clients in working out what could be indemnifiable and claimed under the policy. It's hard to imagine winners at a time like this, but in fact, there are some. With a massive drive in innovation, diversification, and often technology or AI solutions, many retailers are pressed to find new ways of delivering services. There are, of course, intellectual property concerns, and that's why we're speaking to IP law expert Bernadette Fassfeld. Bernadette, the reach of COVID-19 has been felt across all assets of life. The the world and the, the workings of IP in the retail space have not been spared. And how has uh, IP been impacted during this, this crazy time? Toby, firstly, as we all know, and the phrase we've been hearing over and over again is necessity is the mother of invention. And if you look back in history, some of the greatest inventions were the product of pandemics. So at the start of this pandemic, November last year, we expected there to be an immense, immense innovation and as a consequence, an increase in development of intellectual property. And we're definitely seeing that, Toby. Secondly, there's no question that the challenges associated with COVID-19 has caused a rapid adoption of technology. Uh, one just has to reflect on how many of us now utilize conferencing technologies more frequently. In the retail space, we've either seen current technology being embraced for example, the adoption of off-the-shelf mobile applications for online orders, or we're seeing development of bespoke technology by the retailers themselves. For example, online ordering and tracking of purchases. So from the time that the consumer orders the product until the time that it arrives on the, on the purchaser's doorstep. In the case of the retailer developing its own technology, uh, what's great is that they're not, not only able to use this technology in their own business, but they can also consider generating another revenue stream by commercializing that technology under license to other retailers. What trends have you seen in the retail space in particular? So the focus on online sales um, and marketing aside, We've seen retailers adapting their businesses to prevent job losses, really. So if you look at a couple of examples around the world, there've been several gin distilleries, there've been skincare companies, perfume brands making hand sanitizer, the likes of Dior and Louis Vuitton. The, there's an electric car maker in China that's in fact become the, one of the world's biggest mask makers. Zara, the clothing store, They've started producing hospital scrubs. And there are many examples of non-medical companies, especially retail companies, making emergency medical equipment. Another fantastic example, two examples that we've had the benefit of working on are manufacturers of dive masks, converting those dive masks into ventilators. We've also worked with a 3D printing company who are printing valves for ventilators. So South African retailers are only just starting to open up their businesses, or at least they're contemplating doing so. So, Toby, you can be sure over the past six weeks, many retailers have been aggressively exploring what technologies they can adopt in their businesses, or how can they adapt in order to differentiate their, their businesses and make them more efficient. 
it's key when they do this that they protect any associated intellectual property. In some, the, the reality is lockdown in some shape or form is likely to be with us for most of the year. So retailers need to adapt by doing four things, diversifying their product ranges, replacing visits to premises with visits to websites, partnering with logistics companies for home deliveries, and adopting technology-led solutions which will make their businesses more efficient. As retailers prepare to open their businesses, what are some of the issues they should be thinking about in order to maximize and gain some benefit from, from their own IP? So retailers need to, to seek guidance around IP protection to ensure that the rights that they've been investing so much in remain theirs. The first thing that retailers need to do is they need to sit down and they need to look at the IP that's been developed and they need to ensure that they protect that IP by way of registration if possible so that they can remain the owners of that IP and they can enforce their rights. If they're a company traditionally selling alcoholic beverages, for example, and they're now selling hand sanitizer, like the examples I gave previously, their brand will only be protected in relation to alcoholic beverages. So they need to revisit that, and they now need to protect their brand in relation to hand sanitizers. Secondly, uh, it's really important that retailers appreciate that the adoption and use of artificial intelligence in their business is likely to involve both the development of intellectual property and the use of IP developed by third parties. And they will probably more than likely have to pay license fees to that third party. Or they need to, let's, for example, take a restaurant. They are now contracting with Uber to go onto Uber, the Uber Eats application. They need to consider Uber's terms and conditions very carefully so they understand payment terms, for example. So agreements identifying the IP, regulating ownership of that IP and its use are of huge importance. Uh, thirdly, the third point I want to make is that retailers have made retailers may have developed IP in collaboration with another retailer or perhaps with a third party like a logistics company or a software company or even a sole proprietor, a programmer. So they need to not only protect the IP by way of registration, but they also need to regulate the ongoing use of IP by way of agreement with that software company or programmer. And lastly, retailers need to bear in mind that their turnover won't only be increased by selling their products, but they have to remember that they can also generate revenue by licensing their IP that they've developed to other retailers. And if they registered their IP, they can raise funds by putting that IP up as security. That's a useful thing to know because, of course, there is value in intellectual property. And I think we're going to see more of that during this kind of uh, crisis that, that we're seeing from. We're going to speak to a couple of experts in a few fields to get a real sense of how this is going to be. First, tax expert Navasha Singh is going to speak to us about what government assistance is available to employers. Hi, Toby. Thank you very much. So with the onset of the disaster relief that we've seen, um, the COVID-19 temporary employer employee relief scheme, which people commonly referred to nowadays as TERS, is actually a new fund that's been created by the Department of Employment and Labor. And it's specifically there to assist people that are actually 
not working during this period and not receiving a salary. Um, the whole purpose basically is to avoid employees actually losing any income as a result of the temporary closure of their employers' operations. Um, so it has been established to assist employers as well. Um, those employers who may be unable to pay employees due to a temporary closure of the business for a period of three months or less, and the employees that are thereby affected by this as well. I mean, it's a, it, it's a complicated system, but there, there are some kinds of relief that people in business can apply for for their staff? That is correct. Yes, Toby. So with regards to the TERS benefit, it's actually a separate benefit from the UIF's normal benefit system. And employers have actually have to apply to TERS for assistance and not employees. Now, there's certain requirements that need to be met naturally in order to um, qualify for the TERS assistance. And I'm just going to talk you through that just very briefly, just so that there's a proper understanding of what exactly is required. Now, firstly, there has to be a temporary closure uh, of the operations, whether it's whole or in, in part. Now, what this actually means is uh, employers who have partially closed their operations for the lockdown period actually do qualify for TERS. The TERS directive does not clearly define what is meant for operations to be closed in whole or part, but our understanding is that a full closure of operations means that the employer's operations are completely closed and the employer is not able to operate at all. That means not even remotely. Partial closure of the operations, we see it to mean that the employer's operations are not fully closed. The employer is still able to operate certain parts of his businesses, either through an essential service or remote working. Certain examples would be like closure of certain departments in a store or a reduction in working time and a reduction in pay. Now, the employers need to stick to certain requirements in order to apply for this first benefit for their employees. The employer must be registered with UIF. The employer must comply with the application process. And the employer's closure of business operations must be directly linked to the COVID-19 pandemic. And if these three requirements are met, the employer is entitled to um, apply for the TERS benefit on behalf of their employees. Navasha, how is the TERS benefit calculated? I mean, it's a hell of a phrase, isn't it? COVID-19 temporary employer employee relief scheme. It certainly is, Toby. TERS benefits are calculated per employee, and it's according to a very specific set of rules. The maximum TERS benefit per employee is 6,700 rand a month, and the minimum TERS benefit per employee is 3,500 per employee. Um, in order to calculate the benefit that's actually due to each individual employee, the UIF actually uses an automated calculation that incorporates an income replacement sliding scale. Now, that's quite a mouthful. Um, in other words, how it actually works is that employees who actually earn more than 17,712 rand will be entitled to the maximum TERS benefit, whilst employees who earn less than 3,500 rand will actually be entitled to the minimum TERS benefit. So, in other words, if you do the calculation, employees who earn between 3,500 and 17,712 rand per month will actually be uh, entitled to a benefit between 3,500 rand a month and 6,700 rand a month. Navasha, 
There's some contention in respect of the payment to employers from the TERS benefits. Can you elaborate on that for us, please? Absolutely. So the controversy actually comes in in regards to the question of whether or not an employer who pays full salaries to its employees, whether they actually entitled to claim TERS benefits. Now, our in-house view is that the employees can apply to TERS in, in such circumstances. And we, we stand by this because it's supported by clause 11 of the template or the memorandum of agreement, which is between the employer and the UIF. And Clause 11 specifically provides for the recovery of monies by the employer if the employer has already paid part of or all of the benefits listed in in the spreadsheet that has been provided. Now, this clause provides that in such circumstances, the employer is actually able to recover and retain the amount of the terms benefit that has been paid over to the employer by the UIF. These employers will actually be paying their employees the equivalent of the third benefit in advance of receiving the payment by the UIF. So at this point in time, our advice is that employers who pay full salaries in terms of a normal payroll should submit an application to TERS. And this actually includes these employers that pay the full salaries as part of the normal payroll and actually require their employees to take annual leave for the lockdown as well. And I think it's it's vital just to say that in order to avoid any potential disputes with the UIF, it's actually recommended that the employees' payslips reflect that it's a TERS benefit in the event that the employee is paid the value of the benefit or includes TERS benefit if the employee is paid an amount higher than the TERS benefit. So you would know, Toby, that this is quite a complex process. One, even applying for it, and two, is actually declaring it. Um, So we highly recommend that caution is actually applied when, when these documents are being submitted and the declarations made. So it turns out the legislation is as complicated as the acronym itself. Uh, Do you have any other further comments? Just to to actually say that some sort of prudency needs to be advised. And because there are certain tax considerations that are very integral to the actual payroll system and the declaration to SARS, it's really vital to have a legal advisor actually explain the whole process to you in terms of these declarations and whether or not PAYE needs to be withheld from the TERS benefit or not. Great. Thanks, Navasha. So moving on, Bali, let me ask you, when people return to work, what are the key considerations for employers looking at health and safety, as well as obviously their risk management, medical testing, gatherings, personal protection equipment, and travel? We all want to get going, don't we? But how do we do so safely and legally? Well, this is certainly the million-dollar question, Toby, for employers who wish to operate during level four of lockdown. And there are quite a few. I won't highlight all of them, but basically ones that have been controversial since the uh, publication of the regulations last week. Now, firstly, from an administrative point of view, employers must put in place a COVID-19-specific risk assessment as well as policy. And on top of that, a compliance officer must be appointed and assigned. And that will be the person who is responsible for the day-to-day managing and implementation of the employer's control measures. In addition, a workplace plan and the template for this is provided in the regulation, 
must be implemented by the employer. And there are quite a few things that need to be in that plan. But basically, this is to show what the employer has in place to ensure the protection of exposure for employees. Now, in terms of social distancing, the employer must ensure that employees, as well as the greater public, are within 1.5 meters apart from each other. And where this is not possible, the employer has to ensure that there is a physical barrier that is installed um, in order to protect the employee from any sort of exposure. If a physical barrier is not installed, then further PPE needs to be used. And an example is those prospect sheets that we've been seeing employees in the retail section wearing. Now, in terms of symptom screening, we can sort of categorize the two types of screenings which have to be done in, in two. The first is the screening which must be done prior to the employer commencing work at the workplace. And that basically will be the more detailed question because at that time, you don't know when employee has been, what they have been exposed to, if anything. And this is also an opportunity for the employer to make sure that all um, sort of chronic illnesses and diseases that the employee may have, all that information is updated. Then the second category, which is the daily screening, which must be done. And that is basically observing any observable symptoms which the employee may have. You know, are they coughing? Do they have a shortness of breath? Do they have um, red eyes, etc.? There are many symptoms. And the obligation on the employee for this is definitely that they have to reveal any of those symptoms should they find any. The last one, and I think which has been quite controversial, is that the employer must ensure that they provide each employee with a minimum of two masks. And in addition to that, make arrangements for washing, drying, and ironing. <laughs> this has been quite a point of contention for many employers. However, that is the regulations and, and that is the law at the moment. Now, these masks do not derogate from the employer's duty to provide PPE where required by either risk assessment or the employer's operations or any legislation. So on top of those masks, where required, PPE still needs to be provided. So, I mean, it's quite a mouthful and I think employers must actually sit down with the regulations and see how it can be implemented within their operations. Devarsha, what are the top things that employers need to think about as we transition from level five lockdown towards lesser and lesser restrictions? Thanks, Toby. Sure, there's just so much um, employers need to start thinking about, especially in the retail space. And what Mbali dealt with is the practical measures, for example, limiting the contact at workplace and even during the employee's commute to work. What I want employers to start thinking about is more around the legal interventions. Now, this is a space that uh, there's so much, like I said, employers need to start thinking about, breaches of COVID policies. And then to tack on to what Bernadette was saying earlier, one of the technological aspects that people are now starting to think about, performance managing employees remotely using specific technological platforms to do this, which is quite interesting. There's two areas that I want to focus on. These deal with vulnerable employees and medical testing. Now, vulnerable employees, we refer to employees that need special measures that need to be taken in respect of these employees. 
Now, the regulations make specific provisions for employers to put in place special measures for employees over 60 years of age and those with known or disclosed health issues. We look at this and we think, wow, what a great idea. But it's, we have to be very careful. This is not to say that an employer may now have an unfettered right to demand the disclosure of its employees' health statuses. It's always important that employers must be careful not to infringe on employees' rights under the Employment Equity Act and therefore unwittingly discriminate against employees. So the Employment Equity Act has a specific ground of HIV upon which unfair discrimination is prohibited. But we know that this is not a closed list and therefore discrimination can happen on any other medical condition as well. And there's lots of nuances to go in in that space. So for example, where an employer requires an employee to uh, disclose their medical condition. Uh, you know, what happens if an employee refuses to disclose that? And where a vulnerable employee refuses to come to work on the basis that they're, they fear that the measures put in place by an employer does not take into account their special needs and requirements. So all of these special measures that employers need to take place to accommodate vulnerable employees must be considered, taking into account the provisions of the Employment Equity Act. The other issue that also then touches on the Employment Equity Act, which is what I think employers should start thinking about, is medical testing. What what does an employee's rights entail vis-a-vis their refusal to be tested? And what rights does an employer have to test its employees? I'm Toby, these are quite interesting times that we're living in now. There was a time when you would say to your employee, I want to medically test you, and we'd find ourselves in the constitutional court. But the Employment Equity Act does prohibit medical testing unless it's justifiable. And there's there's certain justifiable aspects, for example, medical facts, employment conditions, social policy, and legislation permits it. Now, we look at what the current regulations under the Disaster Act is all about, what they say about medical testing. And the regulations we find do provide that person who has been confirmed as having contracted COVID-19 or even suspected of having contracted COVID-19, and it even goes even further, who has been in contact with the person who is a carrier of COVID-19, that person may not refuse to submit to a medical examination. So, and amongst other things. So then taking that into account, an employer should have proper policies in place around medical testing, specifically around COVID, and mirror the requirements of the regulations as well as the Employment Equity Act. And therefore, a company may rely on the Employment Equity Act to justify its decision to subject employees to medical testing. So those are just the two issues that I think that are quite important and we need to tread very carefully as employers around that space. Will employees continue to work from home? How will that impact remuneration if it will? So, yeah, I mean, um, will employees continue to work from home? I've had mixed feeling around this. Some people want to stay at home and some people can't wait to get out of the house. But what our regulations say is that where it's possible, employers must enable employees to work from home. Enabling is important. That means probably providing laptops or the ability to work from home. Again, always taking into account what's reasonable for an employer. 
regulations specifically provide under level four that employers must adopt measures to enable employees to work from home. And for me, the question here has come about what would happen if employees refuse to come back to work? That's something that I think employees would need to start thinking about. Now, there are some instances where an employee cannot work from home. So, for example, a factory worker that works on machinery. In that situation where a worker refuses to avail themselves without a valid reason, in other words, they're not a vulnerable employee or they're not over 60, the, the, the simple answer there is that an employer is not entitled to remunerate somebody that refuses to come back to work. An employee may be subjected to disciplinary action in that scenario. It would be lawful, I would think, to request an employee to return to work. However, it may be unreasonable to expect that the employee return to work where an employer has not outlined what their health and safety measures they have put in place for the employees in workplace. It is expected that employees will be fearful of contracting the, the virus in the workplace. And then the onus then is up to the employer to reassure its employees that they have sufficient safety measures at work to allay those fears. Now, whether an employee working from home will impact their remuneration or can employees be forced to take leave? I think a lot of employers are suffering financially and the lockdown is having an impact on financial sustainability for many employers to survive even post-lockdown. And then they need to then consider the possibility of reducing salaries and inverted commas, forcing employees to take leave. And I want to pause here and make a very important point. Notwithstanding highly unusual circumstances that's prevalent in South African society today, and the enactment of the regulations and the directives all aimed at this managing this COVID-19. Employers must always remember that they are bound by the provisions of the Labor Relations Act. It remains a supreme law, apart from the Constitution, obviously, in respect of all labor and employment matters. And in fact, and this is a very dear point to me, Section 210 expressly states that in the event of any conflict between its provisions and the provisions of any other law apart from the Constitution, the provisions of the LRA shall prevail. All of these measures, reducing leave, reducing uh, salaries, they entail a change to terms and conditions of employment. Therefore, prior to implementing any of these changes, an employer is required to consult with its employees and reach agreement with those employees. There is a way of an employer to impose a reduction of salaries as well as forced leave or no work, no pay principles. And that's in a very specific circumstance or scenario. So that is where an employee is incapable of working from home. The employer is not considered an essential or permitted service provider. And therefore, there's an impossibility, what we call an impossibility of performance. It's what Mark alluded to in the lease scenario, the force majeure situation. We do have that in the employment sphere as well. And it's only in those particular circumstances that an employer may unilaterally amend terms and conditions of employment. We're going to ask 
tax expert, Sherlene Ritchie. What are some principles that taxpayers should bear in mind when restructuring their affairs, including following insurance payouts and claims of force majeure? Thanks, Toby. Many retailers may have taken a decision to renege on payments of suppliers, including lease agreements, as we have discussed with Mark. Depending on the particular arrangement and the nature of the expense, claiming supervening impossibility of performance may give rise to various outcomes. It is important that the tax implications of these decisions be managed proactively and appropriately. Some of the tax payouts or the restructuring of such debts, if we can call them that, may give rise to recoupments in due course that would be unwarranted in these circumstances. You can imagine retail taxpayers who have not been able to operate as a result of the lockdown wouldn't want additional taxable income to arise in their hands as pursuant to a cost saving. Thinking more broadly around non-essential retail taxpayers or other taxpayers who would have been able to claim insurance payouts for business interruption, it is important to remember that these insurance payouts result uh, pursuant to a loss in profits and would therefore be taxable in the hands of the taxpayer. Uh, this is obviously quite a painful hit, and we look forward to receiving some relief from National Treasury in the July draft bills to be published in relation to corporate tax. Are there additional expenses that businesses must incur to retain a safe environment that are deductible from a tax perspective? Many retailers would have needed to introduce additional measures to ensure compliance with the lockdown regulations to continue to operate or to commence operations under alert level four. These expenses may include the provision of personal protective equipment to employees, hand sanitizers to clients, masks to clients and employees, as well as additional expenditure relating to the provision of a safe working environment and a safe retail environment for clientele. Every expense incurred must either be classified as revenue or capital in nature. Revenue expenditure, of course, ranks for deduction against taxable income, whereas capital expenses do not. Most of the aforementioned expenses should be revenue in nature and should rank for deduction against taxable income earned during this period. However, permanent variations to buildings and land might be capital in nature and therefore would not rank for automatic deduction. All is not lost, though, and I think taxpayers should be keenly aware of some of the capital allowances that can be claimed in relation to variations to land and building or fixed structures. What is the importance of ensuring corporate tax support for all businesses in retail, large or small? South Africa still has one of the highest corporate income tax rates in the world, and even without the impact of COVID-19, we were entering a recession. Looking towards the road to recovery beyond the next year or 18 months, providing corporate taxpayers generally with relief by reducing the income corporate tax rate might allow them a breathing room in relation to the payment of salaries and payment of smaller suppliers, especially where those suppliers are local suppliers and would be supporting families in rural areas. Given the lack of income and the general reduction in consumer spending, most corporate taxpayers are likely to be in a 
tax loss position for the current year of assessment, meaning that corporate tax collections will be low to non-existent for this year. The biggest proportion of revenue collections are from personal income tax rates and allowing relief to corporate taxpayers would allow them to pay employees slightly more, thus protecting our main revenue collection resource base. In addition, we would very much look towards National Treasury to introduce a specific tax incentive for the retail industry that looks to support local procurement by giving taxpayers additional relief when supporting the small retail sector in South Africa. Thank you for listening to this special Weber Wenzel Insights podcast on the state of COVID-19 and the impact on the South African economy. I'm your host, Toby Shapshak. The production is done by volume and the executive producer is Paula Youngens. This is a podcast of Weber Wenzel and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.